Amen. Thank you so much, folks. That was good. I love to worship, and I'm so grateful I get to do it with God's people like this. It's, it's imperative that I come up here with a worshipful heart when we preach. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1? We continue to preach through this great book of the Bible, and I want to encourage you, if you're not already doing it, to really go along for the ride with us as we preach through 1 Peter. This is what we typically do at our church. We preach through books of the Bible. And there's wisdom in that, we believe, in part because when you do that, you don't just get to pick what you preach on topically, and you're forced by God himself and what he chooses to put in these books to preach. You can't just say, well, we're not going to address that topic because there it is. You need to address it. And so, so there's wisdom in taking God's agenda for us and just going right through a book because he knows what he's doing and what we need to hear. And so, so there's wisdom in that to, to appreciate the, the sections of the orchestra that then become the entire symphony when we back up and see the whole Bible is what we're doing. So, so I want to encourage you to be very aware of that we are preaching through 1 Peter and then 2nd. And then be aware, too, of where we are in that. And I really encourage you, in addition to what you may be doing otherwise in the Bible, spend some time preparing your mind and heart for the preached word when you show up by memorizing, meditating on, reading, discussing. A lot of times as a family, we'll orient our Bible reading time and our family devotions around what we're preaching through in the Bible. So this is not the first time Caroline has heard this portion. She's heard it several times now. So, uh, and even to dig a little deeper, maybe even study this on your own so you can know when we get it wrong up here and, uh, and challenge us in that. So that's a good thing. So I, I just love it when I hear somebody went out and bought a First Peter commentary to, to go along for the ride meaningfully. So I, I can't tell you how wonderful it's been for my soul to go along for the ride, not just as one of the preachers, but one of those sitting under the preaching of the word the whole time. And it's amazing. I feel like I'm friends with Mark at a profoundly deeper level because we went through Mark for over a year. And I feel that way with everything we've preached through at Grace. There's a depth that is, is wonderful now. And so so if, if you go through this in earnest with us, I think you'll, you'll truly be blessed by it. Well, 1 Peter is where we are right now. And if you don't know it, one of the reasons we chose 1 Peter was because we're pretty sure that Mark, that we just finished, got most of his information from Peter. It's, it's likely that was the case, that in his understanding of the gospel account he provides, Peter was a primary source for that. And so, so it, it, and we also got a major glimpse of Peter the man in the gospels, and often it wasn't very flattering, uh, it, and that's putting it lightly. Often he uh, ends up tragically portrayed as uh, someone who just, as it actually says in the Gospels, Mark, he said this because he didn't know what he was talking about. Um, he, he was speaking out of ignorance, and he denies Jesus. And so we get this very raw man who is desperately in need of refinement and growth and fruit of the Spirit. And 
Then the glimpse we get here in these epistles written decades after he, he lived those gospel accounts is a very different person. And so we gain great hope in God's ability to change us when we see the Peter of the Gospels contrasted with the Peter who's writing these amazing things, how much he's understood these important ideas he's calling us to understand now. So 1 Peter's where we are. We're just going to read three verses. I love a small book like this. We can really slow down and marinate in it. And so that's what we're going to do. As we go to the Word, let's go to the Lord again. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you for its power, its uh, light and life and sustenance it brings. Lord, please would you help us this morning to be fed and enlightened and sustained by your powerful word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter 1, we're just reading verses 3 through 5. You remember as uh, we heard in the, the recitation of this that Timothy did for us and then the introduction Eric gave last week that this is a letter written to dispersed churches and Peter loves them and wants them to learn and grow and be led to persevering faith. That, I think, is, is what Peter's after for, for us, persevering faith in Christ. So that's where we are. We're elect exiles. We're not home yet. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. Not, don't think Thanksgiving. Think going through the wilderness uh, and, and we're not home yet. We're on our way, though. And so our lives are framed by where we're heading as elect exiles. We're not just exiles. We're not just elect. We're elect exiles. So here's more word to these elect exiles that we are by faith in Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, that's it. Three verses. Three wonderful, glorious, packed verses. Please don't miss the way he starts. He doesn't even say blessing or praise to God is the goal of understanding salvation as I'm actually going to do this morning. He actually does it. He, he models the very thing that is the goal of the understanding. So we're, we're to understand God's amazing character and what that is able to accomplish for us in his saving work. But he's not two verses in to his letter and he personally affectively, energetically bursts into praise. I love this. He can't help it. In light of what he's about to tell us is true, he just bursts into praise. 
It's a beautiful thing. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think your NIV says, praise be, right? Both good translations, probably more literal is this blessed idea, but can cause some confusion because after all, we use that word most when someone sneezes. So we know God's not got a sneezing problem. So why, what is this blessing of God? It can be a hard thing to understand. Well, it, it's the idea that we're not meeting any needs God has. He has no unmet needs, but in relationship, it actually brings delight to the heart of our creator when we live faithfully and praise him with our lives, not just in some corporate worship, but, but with our very lives. And so please don't miss how important this is. As we go through the letter that Peter writes here, we will highlight how often Peter break, breaks into praise. And this is true not just in Peter's writings, but in the whole Bible. You, you can think of how many times the Apostle Paul does it in his letters that he writes as well. There's this inability to just stay in an explanation mode and adoration has to happen. And it, he just bursts into it. And please realize this isn't just what Peter does or what Paul does. This is an, an incredibly biblical view of things. I want you to notice how in the Old Testament, God describes his people, the people I formed for myself. Oh, look, that they may proclaim my praise. I've made them my people and I am their God, but not just so that we could establish that, but so that they could fulfill their ultimate purpose, which is praise. For the purpose of praise is what this is all about. And so the very existence of God's people is for his praise. Listen to how Paul talks about this in Ephesians. Sounds just like Peter. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And then don't miss this. In order that so that for the ultimate purpose of we who were the first open Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Do you see how this teaching on what God has done for us leads to worship and praise to God? It's vital we make that connection. Listen to how Peter, just a couple pages later from our passage, describes this. If anyone speaks describing the way we should live as individual Christians. He should do it as one speaking the very words of God. That's how seriously we take our words. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. And then don't miss this. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, God is praised. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. There he does it again, right? He bursts into praise again. He can't help it. That's, that's how it should be. We should have a seamlessness in, in expressions of praise in our lives that way. One of my mentors, Robert Coleman, was like this, and it was unsettling at first when I started spending time with him because you'd be walking down the road or driving in a car or, or just hanging out in a hotel lobby, and, and he would just seamlessly go from silence or speaking to praise. He would start singing. He, he would start just exclaiming God's goodness. And he'd do the same thing with prayer. You'd be driving down the road, having a conversation, and all of a sudden you realize, wait, he just stopped talking to me, and now he's talking directly to God. 
with no, he never sensed that he needed to say, let us now pray. No, he just would pray. He had such a sense of God's presence and intimacy that he would just burst into praise and prayer. And, and that's exactly what Peter's doing here, right? There he goes again, look. So he's explaining this, right? And then to him be the glory. He just starts a little worship service. And that's how we need to see all we understand about God as culminating in worship. So this is true of us individually. This is true of us corporately. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Now we tend very often, even though there's not even a period there, to put one there and settle on our identity as God's people, as chosen ones, as a royal priesthood. And there's plenty of good, important stuff to settle on there. But we can say, oh, look, we've got an identity. We've got a, we, we, we've got a unity here. The, we've got this wonderful calling as priests. Isn't this great? And what happens is it's all about us. And God sort of hands this gift off to us, and then he's not all that important to any of it anymore. But it won't let us go there, will it? That, you are these people, why? So you can be a people? Well, yes, but not as the end of the story. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He didn't take you out of darkness and bring you into light so you could just be in light but so that in the light you could proclaim the greatness of the one who did that and who is the light. There's got to be a God center to this. Uh, we can so easily and invariably will slip into a human and self-centeredness in our understanding of these God-centered truths. The American church is embroiled in this. The, 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 most, the largest, most successful, growing, popular churches often are the ones who never get to the, the goal. They're the ones who just settle on our identity and never get to the purpose of that so that God will be exalted. And what happens is you actually get cut off from what gives you life the most, God himself. And Christianity becomes a self-help movement, not a radically God-centered, God-glorifying, human-satisfying movement. And so, so we've got to get to the ultimate goal of it. Uh, look where the psalmist takes us. You want protection? Of course you do. You want God to keep you from enemies? Of course you do. Persecution? Yes. But look at this. In you, O oh Lord, I've taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Perfectly right to ask God for that kind of protection. And so we can think, oh, he's my rock, he saves me, protects me. But if we stop there in our memorization and meditation and understanding, it's horribly cut off from the goal, which is what? Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Don't ask for safety just to be safe. Ask for safety so that God can be praised in his provision. We turn God into a good luck charm otherwise. He's not a rabbit's foot. He created you for himself to declare his praises. And I, this really shouldn't be radical, but it is. Because even with clear God-centeredness in the Bible, we somehow can make it all about ourselves. And so, so we've got to be so different 
than this way of doing things and thinking about this. So this blessing of God bringing delight to his heart when we fulfill our intended purpose, which is praise and worship to him ultimately, this expression of praising thankfulness and exclamation of gratitude and admiration, that's what we're created for, and that's when we're most satisfied. All right, I know this can be troubling for some of us because it just makes God seem so self-centered and selfish, but no, it's never true of God. It always is for us if we're this way, but never for God. You don't want him to say, oh, shucks, don't put all the attention on me. It's embarrassing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm self-effacing, like all humans should be. No, because, no, no, think about something more important. No. <laughs> No, he is the most important, the most life-giving, the most satisfying, the most beautiful object of our worship and adoration. So any comments, questions here? I'm sure maybe some of you are really, oh, it's just grating against me. I don't like this about God. That he's so about his glory, but it's so right and good and, and life-giving when we see things the way he does, that he really is God. It's one of those times we need to follow Luther Luther's admonition, let God be God. We, we keep demanding he be us, or at least like us, you know, but he's not. He's God. Anything, comments, questions? He just invites us back into it, though. Yeah. So there's sanctified self-interest here, isn't there? He's inviting us into his glory, into his trinity. So what like, more could you even Right, right. Yes, so... So it's like selfish on his part, but it's like, no, but I want you in it too. Yes, yeah, so... Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's not the least that he leaves us out of the equation. No, we're glorified with him. That's the last thing that happens in the order of salvation. We get brought right into that intra-Trinitarian relations <gasps> as partakers of the divine nature. Wow! Yes, exactly. Right. Jan. Yeah, I have learned over the years that the, the most wonderful thing you can do is to do what God built you to do. Yes. It's the most satisfying yeah. thing in the world. And we're told over and over in Scripture, he built us to praise him. Yeah. How could we be more fulfilled than yes. that? Yes, yes. But, but boy, it feels risky to say, you know what, I'm going to die to self, but so that I can live. I'm going to make not my praise what I live for, but his, and in that, I couldn't be happier. Yeah, exactly. Good. All right. Good. Let's keep going. What else? Well, uh, who is it that's doing these things? Who is it that is being praised? Well, it's none other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, realize how awesome it is to put these two words together. God and Father put together. And how important that they're both there and they're both together. Like Jesse was saying, the importance of the description of the gift of salvation, needing all these things to be working together. How about the importance first of God and Father working together? 
think first that the one doing these things for us and ensuring them for us is none other than God Almighty, the one who has all power, all strength, resources, knowledge, everything he could ever need for accomplishing this, he has. But if it were just God in some abstract list of attributes like that, creator, powerful, all-knowing, that wouldn't be enough, would it? He needs to be our God and Father, a Father, a protector, a provider, one who makes sure that you get home okay, the, the, the strong fatherly hands and arms that hug you and, and show you the care of a father. We need God to be that too. Now, if he were just Father and not God, well, thanks, you know. As, as much as Tim may want to protect his daughters from harm, they move across the country and make it a lot harder, don't they? Yes, yeah, he's frail, he's finite, right? The, the best fathers in the world lack what they need to, to ultimately protect their children. That's why the best fathers entrust their children ultimately to their heavenly father and point them to him over and over again. And so, yes, he's our God, all-powerful, infinite, never lacking resources, and our Father, the one who tenderly calls us children. And so he's both of those things. He, he's our God and Father, and that's great news. He is God. Imagine if even a really powerful person were entrusted with caring for us in this way. It wouldn't be enough. It's God doing this. It's not even Donald Trump doing it, who, who really isn't as powerful of God as God in spite of what he thinks. Uh, yes, this is God doing this. He's, he is the awesome creator of the universe who also is our father. But it's not even stopping there. He's the God and father of, before he's our father. He's the father of Jesus, Christ, the son. So the sonship of Christ by faith becomes our inheritance. And so he is our father in that. And apart from that, you don't know God. Apart from that, you don't have God as he's revealed himself. And you don't have all these benefits that we're hearing about this morning. If you're a believer this morning, persevering faith in what you've come to believe is what we're seeking. If you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, I want you to know how much you're missing, how much you're missing out on. If you've bought a different version of God or no version of God than the one we have here, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. Now, he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, a tremendous specificity and definition to this God, not just general, vague, abstract attributes of God that major world religions can all agree to. No, this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has finally, once and for all, revealed himself in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is beheld in his face. There's actually a, a debate these days that's raised to the surface uh, about whether or not Muslims or J Jewish folks or, or Christians all worship basically the same God. Well, this is showing us, no, God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ in such a way where if you don't know him in Jesus, you don't know him. 
Jesus himself is very clear about this. Listen to what he says in John 5. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 5. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. <gasps> He's saying that to actually religious leaders. You don't have the love of God in you. Now, what's his basis for saying that? I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. He says, because you're rejecting me, I know what the state of your heart is. The love of God isn't there. There may be a kind of love by God's general grace, but there's not the kind of love that we're ultimately called to. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8. You know neither me nor the Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. See how Jesus is linking. If you want to know God, you have to know me. That's what he's saying. 1 John 2, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John 6, whenever, everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus says. And then Luke, the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Do you see how Christ-centered our understanding of God must be if we're going to know God? Now, you can think about Old Testament saints, but, but they were trusting God as far as he had revealed himself. And now, in Christ, we realize they, including Abraham, was longing to see his day. That's how Jesus talks about Abraham's faith. It was in anticipation of the fulfillment of that understanding in Christ. And so, we have to worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very specific, very defined. And I know this is a dividing reality, and Jesus is very clear about that as well. If you don't have Christ, you don't have what you desperately need, God himself. So he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What else does it say? Now we begin, as Jesse helped us see, this beautiful piling up of adjectives and participles, descriptive words, helping us understand the nouns more intensely and more worshipfully. This is one of the best things about the way the New Testament talks. It piles up these descriptive words to describe the noun. So participles are these, uh, they're really a little hard to understand. Um, so living, unfading, undefiled, those are part of, the word I came up to describe them is adjuverbs. Adjectives describe nouns. <laughs> Verbs are action words. These are adjuverbs. These are verbish adjectives. These, these are words deepening, intensifying our understanding of these nouns. And so, so we have this great mercy. That's an adjective. It's a, a, a description of a noun that makes just say, oh, God has mercy. It's sort of, oh, no, no, you need to know it's great mercy. It's, it's huge. It's massive. It's, it's massive mercy because we have this instinct to think God's cheap. We do. We think he's miserly, maybe because we so often are inclined to be that way or people treat us that way. And so we assume God just maybe lacks the resources. And I think that was the first lie we were ever told about God in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that really the basic lie, God's cheap? Ah, so you can't eat the trees in the garden, huh? Well, no, actually, snake, we can eat of everything in the garden. Just, just that one tree. I'm, I knew it. It's holding out on you. It doesn't have your best interest in mind. Better go fend for yourself. The anti-grace message. You don't trust in God. And so it's great mercy. <coughs> and it leads to what? A living hope. 
That's that, that participle, that, that verbish adjective, right? That's describing this hope. And that living hope is the result of what? Being born again. Being born again. So it probably just a few of us in here lived through the Carter administration, right? Um, <laughs> remember it well, yes. Um, first, that was the first time gas went over a dollar a gallon. Believe it or not. Yes. So the Carter administration, though, I remember most, even as a kid, for the fact that people asked Jimmy Carter as a Southern Baptist about his Christian faith, and he described himself as born again. And then Chuck Colson later on wrote a book called Born Again, describing his conversion. And then there was this category of Christians that developed out of that as a born again Christian. You don't hear it as much as you did for a while there in the 70s and 80s, but, but born again Christian became this way of defining Christians as this little subset of the broader category of Christians. But the fact is, and what we're seeing here, is if someone says to you, oh, you're a born-again Christian, what you really should say is, yes, and actually, that's the only kind. <laughs> the Bible is very clear that there's no other category of Christian. We love to come up with all these subsets but the Bible's saying, no, there's a common denominator of true Christians, and that is they're new. The old is gone. The new has come. They're new creatures in Christ. They'll never be the same again because they've seen Jesus in a way that isn't just a moral teacher or gives him principles for living or, or a vague hope. No, he now is their life. See, there's only one kind of Christian, and it's a born-again Christian. And so, so we're born again. This is what Jesus talks to Nicodemus about in John 3. This religious leader is just not getting the necessity of spiritual rebirth out of darkness into life. And so we get this living hope by being born again, caused by God. Don't miss that. He's the causative agent in this happening. It's nothing you do to make it happen. He causes this to happen, this being born again. He brings life from above, and it leads to a living hope. I love this description of hope. This, this descriptive word of hope is wonderful. It's not just that we have hope, and by the way, if you don't have hope, you got nothing. You can have the best circumstances in the world, but in it you can lack hope. You can have the worst circumstances in the world, but if you have hope in those, it's entirely a different reality. What do we need more than hope? If you lose hope, what's left? We need hope, and the good news is we've got it. We've got hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, it's grounded in God's character. And we see that character displayed in what he's done in Christ in killing death and overcoming sin and evil. And so, based on that amazing display of who God is and what he will do for us in Christ, we have a living hope. Why is it a living hope? Because the one who gives it is alive. He's not dead. He's alive, and so it's a living hope. The second reason it's a living hope is because it is to affect your daily living, to what Vivian was talking about. 
This ends up transforming everything else. This hope now in what God has accomplished, is doing, and will ultimately fulfill one day now invades the present into daily living. And so all relationships, uh, spending of money and leisure time and priorities, and pr it's all defined now by what God has done in Christ. And so it, it affects daily living and it's alive because of Jesus. It's a living hope. This is so good. Through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he's alive. And what this leads to then is an inheritance. Inheritance, as we've said, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is great. Um, we've already talked a little bit about this in our discussion. But inheritance is an interesting concept. It, 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 the inheritance, the degree to which, the reality of which or not, really has or should have a huge effect on the way you live. And, but inheritance is an interesting thing because, uh, because we, we think of earthly inheritances when we do this, we know that sometimes inheritances uh, are hit or miss. <laughs> sometimes people think they're gonna get a big inheritance and it ends up being nothing after litigation or, or family squabbles or things that happen. I've personally been taken in and out of a will three times by a person in my family based on certain <laughs> arguments. And I think, I think these days I'm in. Last I checked, I'm in. Not, not that it weighs on me heavily or anything. But, but, uh, but yeah, you, you could be removed from a will. You can say, well, you're no longer getting the inheritance after that. Or you can get an inheritance like Jesse was pointing us to. Do you know what? I've, I watch friends of mine inherit the family possessions. And, and do you know what one of the first things they often do when that happens is? Rent a dumpster. <laughs> I mean, that's a chilling thought. That one day your children, on their top of their list of things to do, when they get your inheritance, will rent a dumpster to go to the house and dump most of the stuff in there that was important to you but not to them because it's faded, right? It has no value to them. Well, the great news here is you'll never be taken out of this will, and when you get it, you'll never say, oh, <laughs> really? Why did this have value? It won't happen. It won't happen. It, it, you, will, you will arrive at this inheritance and say, oh, more than I could ever have imagined. Right? I knew it was going to be good, but I can't believe how good. Right? Beyond the human imagination capacity. And for all of eternity, we'll be reveling in how great it really ended up being. And that, believe it or not, we were never taken out of the will. It's great news, but it's still not good enough. Why? Because you can say all that about the inheritance, but sometimes I wonder if I'll actually ever get there. You can tell me I have this, um, this amazing inheritance awaiting for me, but wow, sometimes I wonder if I'll ever arrive. Life can be filled with potholes and detours and, and obstacles and discouragements and terrible failures. Well, it's one thing to say that inheritance is everything I could ever need, but I don't know if I've got what it takes to get there. I can relate to Peter, who denied his Savior, and not just a long time ago. And, and so I don't know if I've got what it takes to get to the inheritance. 
as great as it may be, I'm not sure it's going to be for me because I'm not too confident in my ability to go through the journey as an exile. That's why he writes verse 5. Who, describing true believers, by God's power are being guarded. It's not the inheritance that's being guarded. It's you that is through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're being guarded by God's power to get home. And again, as we've said, what's the access to that divine enabling? Faith. That's the link. That's the access to God's power getting you home. Faith taking your hands off the power and control and manipulation of everything and just saying, all right, not I, but Christ, I trust you. That's what it is. It's, just, it's laying down all your effort, all your righteousness, all your nothing that you offer and saying, God will do it. It's trusting him, not yourself. And he'll get you home. That's what he's promised. And if that doesn't lead you to praise, I don't know what will. Well, let's, let's pray. Let's, let's burst into prayer and praise as we conclude. So would some of you do that for us?